Let me invite you to turn with me this morning to the Old Testament and to the book of 1 Kings and to the 15th chapter and the 9th verse. 1 Kings 15, and we will read verses 9 through 15. So in the 20th year of Jeroboam, the king of Israel, Asa began to reign as king of Judah. He reigned 41 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Ma'akah, the daughter of Abishalom. Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord, like David his father. He also put away the male cult prostitutes from the land and removed all the idols which his fathers had made. He also removed Ma'akah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made a horrid image as an Asherah, and Asa cut down her horrid image and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly devoted to the Lord all his days. He brought into the house of the Lord the dedicated things of his father and his own dedicated things, silver and gold and utensils. Father, pray that you would help us today to do right in your sight, to do right in the way that we listen and in the way that we believe and in the way that we apply your word. Help me to do right in the way that I speak it this morning. And you help us, we pray, in all these things. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we read there, this king, Asa, was in very many ways a great king among the people of God. He was the great, great grandson of King David. And we are told in verse 11 that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, like David, his father. And in fact, he brought about something of a reformation in the land of Judah. He removed the idols that had been set up by his forefathers, verse 12, some of them probably dating all the way back to the reign of Solomon. He even stood against his own mother in verse 13 when she herself brought further idolatry into the land or because she had done that. And furthermore, we find in verse 15 that he was very generous toward the work of the Lord, donating silver and gold and utensils to the temple. So Asa was in many ways a good king, a godly king, the author of 1 Kings tells us. The heart of Asa was wholly devoted to the Lord all his days. Verse 14. Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord. That would be a great thing to have written at the top of your obituary, wouldn't it? Or if someone was writing the history of your family, as they are the family of David here, it would be a great thing if they could pause at your life and near the beginning of your story sum it up by saying, she did, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. It's a marvelous thing. But, verse 14, but, and that word but tells us that what is about to follow in Asa's life is going to break the normal pattern. The word but tells us that there was one exception to all the good that was accomplished in the reign of Asa. 
Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He removed the idols from his territory. He removed the sexual immorality that went along with him. He cut down his mother's idol. He burned it with fire. He was generous toward the Lord's work. But there was this one area of failure, verse 14. There was this one black mark on his regime. There was this one stain of disobedience among God's people that didn't get fully cleaned up during Asa's reign. Namely, the high places were not taken away. Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but the high places were not taken away. And I want us just to think a little bit more in depth this morning about that sentence, or that half of a sentence really, but the high places were not taken away. I want us to think about that black mark that sits here on the reign of good King Asa. Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but the high places were not taken away. Now you might say after everything else that the authors told us about good King Asa, it sounds awfully nitpicky that I would choose to focus on this one area of failure. But I do so this morning not in order to pick on Asa, but because if you read the history of the kings of Judah you will find this refrain, the refrain of verse 14a, becoming a very familiar one in your ears down through the generations of his descendants. For instance, we read about King Jehoshaphat, who is Asa's son, as follows in 1 Kings 22. He walked in all the way of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing right in the sight of the Lord. However... The high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places. And this becomes a kind of running theme for several generations after Asa among the kings of Judah who sat on David's throne in Jerusalem. If you were to go home today and keep reading through 1st and 2nd Kings, you would read about Jehoash and Amaziah, and Azariah, and Jotham, all of whom were descendants of Asa. And in each of their stories, you would come across a sentence that reads much like this. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And so this wasn't just a black mark on Asa's reign, but these high places became a snare to many generations of God's people and an unfinished task among many generations of their kings. The high places were not taken away. And all this, of course, begs the question, well, what were the high places? What were these things that should have been taken away, but that were not taken away? What were the high places? Well, essentially, they were worship sites where people would go and present various sorts of offerings, sometimes to the Lord and sometimes to other gods like Baal. Some of these high places, these worship sites, seem to have been left behind by the Canaanites who inhabited the land before the Israelites got there, and others were built by the Israelites themselves and by their kings. And as the name indicates, these worship sites, these high places, would probably often have been set up in the hills or mountains. Maybe people felt closer to God the closer they got to the clouds. And so there were, hither and yon, throughout the hills of Israel and Judah, these familiar worship sites perched here and there where people would bring their offerings 
either to the Lord or to Baal or to whomever. Some of them would have had working priests who took care of these sites and served the local constituency who came to worship there. And by Asa's day, these things were a regular feature of the religious life of the peoples of Israel and of Judah. But what was wrong with all of that? What was wrong with the high places? That's the second question this morning. What was wrong with these high places? Why did they need to be removed? Well, the answer to that question is really twofold. The first and most obvious thing that was wrong with the high places, and I hope you picked up on this already, was that some of them were being used to worship other gods. The high places were often the sites of pagan rituals. The same kind of pagan rituals that Asa was concerned to destroy here in verses 12 through 13, incidentally. These high places were the site of Baal worship and cult prostitution and all manner of idolatry, which is a stench in the Lord's nostrils. You shall have no other gods before me. Didn't God say that in Exodus 20, verse 3? It's the very first of the Ten Commandments. And so, to whatever extent these high places were used to worship Baal or the Asherah, they were idolatrous and they were adulterous. These high places, if you will, were the beds on which many of God's people played the harlot with all sorts of false gods. And it's a reminder, isn't it, that even people who call themselves by God's name sometimes follow their lusts into very dark places. Sometimes they commit grave sins in adultery against the Lord. Even many professing Christians have idols in their lives and high places at which they worship them. Dark rooms with the door locked, hotels or newsstands where no one will recognize you because you're out of town on a business trip, deep places in your heart even where idols are cherished and fed and loved. And I just say to you in passing this morning, really not in passing, I just say to you this morning, if your footsteps are wandering to any such places right now, if you are going and worshiping idols right now in your life, And I don't just mean blocks of stone. I mean you're putting other things before God and allowing yourself to sin and knowingly going to those places where you're doing it. Let this be your warning. Let this passage be your wake-up call. God knows about the high places. He knows exactly where they are. He sees you when you go there and He gives you opportunity to repent today so that you need not be exposed and so that you need not be judged for these things tomorrow. That was one reason why the high places were such an abomination, because they were so often used to high-handedly flout the very first of God's commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. They were also um, a problem in another way. Not only were they havens of spiritual adultery against the Lord, but there was another issue too. Asa didn't have that problem of allowing the high places to be used to worship other gods, did he? We just read in 1 Kings 15 that he did away with the cult prostitutes. He did away with the idols. He took the first commandment in hand, and he ran paganism out of the land. And so you would think, well, there shouldn't be any more problems with the high places, should there? Except that, as I mentioned a few moments ago, it wasn't only Baal and other foreign gods who were worshipped in these locations. There were also high places that were set up for the worship of the one true God, the worship of the Lord. 
Some of God's people had built little shrines on the hilltops where they could burn incense and make sacrifices to the one true God. And both Judges 17 and 2 Kings 23 seem to indicate that some of these shrines were even worked by some of the true priests of the Lord. The men of the family of Aaron would go and work these places. And what could be wrong with that, right? The people of the Lord are worshiping the Lord. They're worshiping the right God. And they're doing so even through his approved priests. And so why would it have been such a black mark on Asa's reign and on the reigns of his sons that there were such places scattered around the land? We might almost think that this would be a positive thing because more worship sites might mean more people actively engaged in worshiping God, right? And yet the author of 1 Kings clearly sees the existence of these scattered worship centers as a blemish on Asa's otherwise remarkable record. Not a good thing. Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but... The high places were not taken away. And why does our author pause to mention that? Why is it a negative thing that people were worshiping the one true God, especially given all the courage it took for Asa to combat paganism among his subjects? Why was it such a bad thing that people were worshiping the one true God in all of these scattered places? Well, the problem wasn't that the people were worshiping the one true God. The problem was that they were worshiping or attempting to worship the one true God in a way that was false, in a way that he had not prescribed for them, in a way that he had, in fact, forbidden them to do. You may remember that when God gave the Israelites the tabernacle earlier in the Old Testament, the tabernacle with the Ark of the Covenant inside and the sacrifices and the incense and the priests to make the offering and specific instructions for how and when and why certain sacrifices were to be made. When God gave the Israelites the tabernacle and later the more permanent temple that replaced it, he told them that this was the only place to which they were to bring their offerings. Only in this one location. And along those lines, let me just read you a couple of passages from the books of Moses that tell us that. First of all, Leviticus 17, verses 3 and 4. Any man from the house of Israel who slaughters an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or who slaughters it outside the camp and has not brought it to the doorway of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guiltiness is to be reckoned to that man. In other words, any sacrifice that is made, even if it's made to the Lord, is to be made only at this one approved location, only at the tabernacle, and to do otherwise is to be worthy of death. Blood guiltiness is to be reckoned to that man. And then Deuteronomy 12, verses 13 and 14. Be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. So God made a command in Leviticus 17 that sacrifices should be made only at his house. And he had, of course, ordained that he should only have one house. And yet he also knew that people would be tempted to circumvent this. They would be tempted to make sacrifices here and there to create alternative shrines at high places. And so he specifically warned his people in Deuteronomy Don't do that. Be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses. 
And that seems to have been the snag during Asa's reign and for several generations afterward. The kings were leading the people to worship the true God, but somehow the people were still doing it in false ways. Now, we don't have time or we won't take the time to explore exactly why God may have forbidden that worship take place in any place but the temple. Although I wonder if perhaps one reason might simply have been to leave a memorial for all time that there is only one way to God, a reminder which is sorely needed in our own day. But whatever the reasons, or even if God should never tell us his reasons why only in the temple can sacrifices be made, we're obliged to obey him completely, are we not? Not just in this, but in anything. Even if God doesn't tell you why he wants you to do X, Y, or Z, you do it because he is the Lord, right? And in this case, the Old Testament people of God were obliged to worship God, not according to their own fancy, not based on their own conveniences or preferences. Be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses. That's the point. You are to worship God in the way that God says you're to worship him, not in the way that you think would be best. Be careful, he says, that you don't worship according to your own fancy. And we need now then to ask a third question of this passage. What were the high places? Well, they were these worship sites scattered around where people worshipped Baal and other gods and where they also sought to worship the Lord. What was wrong with them? Well, not only that people worshipped Baal there, but that people worshipped there because they thought that this was the best place to worship, not because God had said, do it. In fact, God had said, don't do it. Bring your offerings only to my house. But then the third question was, whose fault was all this? We look at Asa and his kingdom and this one thing that was left undone, and we ask, who was responsible for this continual disobedience throughout Asa's reign and beyond? And depending on how you interpret the evidence, you might point the finger at Asa himself, or you might decide that Asa did the best he could, but that his unruly people continued their sin in spite of the king. It's interesting to know that 1 Kings 15 is not the only portion of Scripture that describes Asa's reign. The book of 2 Chronicles, chapters 14, 15, and 16, also gives us some additional information about good king Asa. For one thing, it tells us that he did not finish his life in very stellar fashion. And I'll leave you to go and read about that on your own But what is pertinent for our subject this morning is that 2 Chronicles 14, verses 2 through 5, reads like this. Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God, for he removed the foreign altars and high places, tore down the sacred pillars, cut down the ashram, and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. He also removed the high places. And the incense altars from all the cities of Judah, and the kingdom was undisturbed under him. Now that sounds a little different from what we read in 1 Kings, doesn't it? The chronicler says that Asa did remove the high places. So what gives? Is this one of those places at which the Bible actually contradicts itself? And if it's not, how do we make sense of what we've been reading in Kings 
the high places were not taken away with Second Chronicles, which says that they were. Well, I read these two passages about Asa this week, and I found myself perplexed. How does this work? But I found that the commentator C.F. Kyle has a brief section discussing this apparent discrepancy, and he mentions two possibilities, and depending on which possibility we go with, I think we, we, we look at, is it Asa or is it his people who are at fault here? One possibility for the discrepancy between Kings and Chronicles, which Kyle cites but does not hold himself, is that Chronicles perhaps refers to Asa's response to the pagan high places, whereas Kings perhaps speaks of what he did or didn't do concerning the high places where people tried to worship the Lord. Remember, there were two different kinds of activities taking place at these high places. Some of them were being used to worship Baal and the Asherah and so on. Others were being used, however incorrectly, in an attempt to worship the one true God. And so it's possible that when Chronicle says that Asa removed the high places and the incense altars, that it is referring specifically to those high places that were pagan in their usage, where pagan gods were worshipped. And then that what Kings is telling us is that while Asa, Second Chronicles, removed the false gods and their high places from the lands, he did not deal so thoroughly with the false ways in which his people were trying to worship their own god. So under this first interpretation, both statements are true in Kings and Chronicles. Asa did remove certain high places, but others were not taken away. And if that's the case, it seems to me that Asa has to take the blame for this neglect. He was concerned about the first commandment, that there would be no other gods worshipped in his kingdom, but he wasn't so concerned that the one true God was worshipped the right way. But then C.F. Kyle mentions another way to read Asa's story here in 1 Kings. Specifically, he notes that the very next statement here after we read that the high places were not taken away, is that in spite of that, quote, the heart of Asa was wholly devoted to the Lord all his days. And that doesn't seem to square with the idea that Asa was neglectful about something as important as the proper worship of God, does it? If he, if he was wholly devoted to the Lord all his days, maybe the fact that the high places were not taken away wasn't his doing. Kyle further notes that the first half of verse 14 doesn't specifically say that the king didn't take away the high places. It simply says the high places were not taken away, which I surmise then would leave the blame for the false worship on Asa's subjects and at their feet. Because Chronicles does say that Asa did remove the high places, and perhaps he removed not just the pagan ones, but he removed the ones where incense was burned to the Lord, and maybe the people just kept going up there anyway and rebuilding them, and continuing their self-willed worship in spite of the king. And so maybe the people are more at fault. Maybe the king did the best he could to promote godly worship in his realm, but the people didn't follow him fully, and thus the high places were not taken away. Well, I have to admit that it seems to me that maybe both are at fault. Asa and his people in this business of the high places Matthew Henry, the commentator, presents this option, that while Asa did indeed remove the pagan high places, Second Chronicles 14, and while that was a very good thing, yet he seems perhaps to have taken a rather laissez-faire attitude toward the shrines where at least the people are trying to worship the true God. But perhaps the reason that he did so, or at least part of it, 
was because the people were so attached to these things that to have taken them down might have really backfired on him politically. And so the high places were not taken away. And they became a blemish on what was overall a very good and godly era in Judah's history. Asa, along with several of his descendants and their people, let this one task of reformation slip through their fingers. Now again, Asa was a good man, a godly man. He did what was right. He was wholly devoted to the Lord. And the word but at the beginning of verse 14 doesn't send him to hell, nor does it even mean that he wasn't a good king or a godly king. He was, and I don't mean to de-emphasize that fact, although I realize the emphasis of this sermon is probably doing that. But Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord. His heart was wholly devoted to the Lord all his days. But here's the thing. Even men of whom it can be said that they are wholly devoted to the Lord, even those men can sometimes leave important things undone can't they? Now, I don't know that I would describe myself as wholly devoted to the Lord, maybe someday. But what I do know is that in spite of my efforts to faithfully shepherd this flock, if I were to die this evening, there would be a lot of things left undone that I would have wished I had finished. Things that I should have gotten done and that I haven't yet. And I'm sure that'll be the case even if I pastor here another 50 years. And so, When I stand before God's judgment and give an account for how I have shepherded the flock of God, which he has entrusted to me, I'll have to rely, like Asa surely did, wholly on God's grace, won't I? I won't stand before God's throne and say, well, let me in because I did what was right in the sight of the Lord. I followed you with my whole heart all my days. I'll have to rely on grace. And maybe that's part of the lesson of Asa's life. That... As it is often said, even the best of men are men at best, right? Even the most devoted men fall short and need all their works, even the good ones, to be covered by the blood of Jesus. Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but the high places were not taken away. He was weak in this one area. He was neglectful. Matthew Henry even suggests that maybe he suffered a little bit from the fear of man. Let me just give you Henry's surmise as to perhaps why the high places were not taken away with just a few modernizations to his language that I will will make. Asa removed all images which were rivals with the true God, but the altars which were set up in high places and to which those sacrifices were brought which should have been offered on the altar in the temple, these he permitted to stand, thinking there was no great harm in them they having been used by good men before the temple was built, and being wary of troubling the people who had a kindness to them and were wedded to them by custom and convenience. End of quote. Now that again is Henry's surmise about what may have been going through Ace's mind as he determined to leave the high places alone, but I think it might not be far from the truth. It gives us at least an insight into how our psyche sometimes work, doesn't it? Sometimes we leave certain sins alone in our lives or in the lives of our fellow believers because they really seem fairly harmless. And because, after all, other good people have been beset with these same things. And because if we say anything about it, we'll probably kick up a lot of dust and many people will be quite offended. And certain sins, therefore, just begin to be normal among God's people. Certain sins, like this one, 
can go for generations mostly unchallenged, even by good and godly people, just like the worship at the high places in times of old. One of the first examples of this that I think of is how for so long in this country the church tolerated and sometimes even defended racism and slavery. That should not have been. That was a grievous sin that in many places was just set to the side because it seemed normal. So many others were entangled in it as well. But even for us today, there can be sins that just linger and aren't challenged for generations among Christians. Racist attitudes still. Gossip. Discontentment. Complaining. Dishonesty in financial dealings. So-called white lies. Disregard for the Lord's day. You can think of other things too, I'm sure. I wonder if you're guilty of anything like this. You know such and such a behavior is unbiblical, but it seems so, such common fare among so many other believers, and so it must not be that big a deal. I'll just leave it alone. I'll just allow the high places to remain as they are. At least these people are worshiping God. Think about that in your own life. Are there seemingly little areas of disobedience that you're allowing to go on, maybe through the generations? And if so, would you not get out your hatchet today and begin tearing the high places down once and for all? But at least we don't have to worry about the particular problem of Asa's day, right? Because now that Jesus has come to be the tabernacle of God among men, now that Jesus has come as the great high priest, now that Jesus has come to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, now that Jesus has come and fulfilled all that the Old Testament tabernacle and temple stood for, we no longer have to go only to that one place to worship God, right? Today we can worship the Lord on top of a hill like this one with no worry that we're breaking God's law or worshiping in a high place. The hour that Jesus talked about to the woman at the well has finally come. The hour when the true worshipers will worship the Father, not in Jerusalem, but in spirit and truth. And so for those of us who live on the backside of Jesus' coming, there are no longer any off-limits high places, at least in the sense that there are no longer any forbidden locations where we are not allowed to worship the Lord. Praise God for that, right? So long as we come to God through Jesus, we can worship in a heated building like this one on the top of a hill or on the living room floor or in a prison cell with Paul and Silas, or under a coconut tree in India, or wherever else it may be. And we praise God for that. And yet, there's still a lesson in these high places where people are worshiping God according to their own will instead of according to His. And I've had these high places in the back of my mind for some time now. I've thought about them multiple times. And it occurs to me that like all sin, really, the real root of the false worship at the high places was not only that the people didn't obey the direct commands of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The root was that their whole mindset was simply that they could come to God in worship according to their own fancy. That they could determine what best suited them in worship. As though worship is ever really, first of all, about the worshiper. 
And that's the root of all sin, isn't it, really? We just decide we're going to do it the way we like to do it, rather than the way God says. And so, though what is required of us in worship in this new covenant era is different from what was required in Asa's day, I think I'm not wrong to say that the same attitude still prevails in many hearts down to this very day. The great sin of the high places was that the people worshiped God, not according to his will and his word, but according to their own. God had told them, be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place you see, but in the place where the Lord chooses. And they reversed that. They said, let's offer sacrifices in whatever place we determine, regardless of what the Lord has chosen. And if that's what a high place really boils down to, worshiping God according to our own fancy instead of according to his will, then it seems to me that we still have scads of high places scattered all around our territory. Some of them are perhaps so obviously unbiblical that they are, I hope, well beyond the pale of our own temptations. I think, for instance, about what much of what passes for worship in certain charismatic circles the chaos, the disorder, the mindlessness that is even encouraged sometimes, the manipulation of emotion. A lot of that has much more to do with human fancy than with anything that we can find prescribed in the New Testament. And in many cases, the people are worshiping the one true God, right? But they're doing so, as it were, at the high places. They're worshiping God not in the manner detailed in Scripture, but according to what seems best in their own eyes. Now, I don't say that there might not be some very saintly people like Asa who tolerate those sorts of unwarranted worship practices but still deeply love God. But be that as it may, the worship itself is still of the high places variety because it's based on the imagination of men. But as I say, that's probably not where most of us are tempted. But there are a couple of other high places that I think might be a little more close to our doorsteps that I want to just take this opportunity to remind you of and warn you of before we finish. So what are some of the ways that we might be tempted to worship the Lord according to our own wisdom, according to human preference, according to our own wills, rather than the will of God? I have one just brief one, and then one that I will major on and finish with. What are the high places at which we might be tempted to bow? Well, the one I'll mention briefly is that of images. Images. God has precluded us in the second commandment from worshiping or even portraying him by means of images. And so I just, at this juncture in American history, want to say to you, though many good and godly people may feel excited that a film portrayal of the life of Jesus is a great thing and will do wonders, and though their motives for doing that may be very commendable, we have to ask ourselves, as with anything, whether this sort of thing doesn't actually fall into the category of the high places of old, in which people are legitimately trying to serve the Lord, but in a way that he's actually forbidden us to do. And the same should be said, I think, about Jesus' statues and figurines and pictures. Some of the godliest people you know may approve of these things or believe them to be helpful tools, and God may withhold his judgment about them, just as he did with the high places in the days of Asa, but that's no proof that they actually please the Lord. There are, it seems to me, high places in this regard. But then let me mention something that I think is much more broad and ongoing and prevalent, 
And that is what we might call the high places of consumer worship. Consumer worship. We live in a market-driven culture, don't we? There are people whose whole career is to figure out how they can package or portray or brand their product so as to make you want to buy it, right? It's not necessarily a bad thing, and apparently it works. Geico wouldn't have spent millions of dollars perfecting their line of gecko commercials if their analytics didn't tell them that the gecko makes people buy car insurance, right? It works. Marketing works. And churches have figured out that marketing works, such that what goes on in many a Sunday gathering is a form of marketing. Let's figure out what works, what gets people to want our product, whether it be music of a certain type or the use of technology or the charisma of the leaders or the color of the lights or the brand of coffee in the foyer or the pizzazz of the children's programs or what have you. Churches have figured out that you, the consumer, want certain things out of your church experience and they know then that this is what makes people want to buy their product, so to speak, and have created an image that markets their church in the best way possible along those lines. And, of course, there are extreme cases of this, but there are also more subtle ones to which even a small church like ours is not immune. And I just want you to be aware of that. Be aware of the possibility that you or we could be worshiping God based really on what we like and what seems to make us feel good. And while I'm not suggesting that churches should be intentionally awkward or boring, or that certain styles of music or lights or coffee are more or less biblical than others, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that we must beware of the mindset that organizes worship around human conveniences and preferences as though we were shopping for a car or for the insurance to cover it with. We're coming to bow our lives before the living God, aren't we? And that's not shopping. And that was the root of the problem in Asa's day. People went to the high places, not intentionally to provoke the Lord, but probably because it was easier to do so than to travel all the way to Jerusalem and to worship the way God had directed them to do. So they worshiped God. They wanted to worship God, but in the ways that they themselves thought best and most convenient, and most meaningful to them. And when personal preference became the criteria, two things happened. One, they ceased doing some of what God actually required them to do. And two, they began adding new elements in, according to their own fancy. They ceased doing what God had asked them to do, and they added new things in. And this is a danger of modern consumerism. It's true that in catering to the congregation's preferences in terms of style or content or relevance, no one is intentionally trying to provoke God. People are simply trying to make worship more user-friendly, and that's not necessarily a bad thing all the way around. But when user-friendliness, as in Asa's day, when user-friendliness leads us to neglect certain requirements that God has set down for us because they seem inconvenient or difficult to do or unattractive from a marketing perspective, then we're in trouble. If we are willing in the church for the sake of marketing to set aside reverence, to set aside corporate prayer, to set aside the public reading of scripture or accountability 
or calls for repentance or bold proclamation of the cross, we're in trouble. Or if user-friendliness leads us to begin adding things of which God does not approve, we're in trouble as well. If we start adding things because, like the gecko, people really seem to like them, whether it's flippant humor or images of Jesus or the cult of personality or catering only to a certain demographic, then we've crossed the line and begun to set up our own high places. We've begun to worship according to our own fancies rather than by the book. And just so you know, this is not only a problem in contemporary churches. A demand for suits and ties and classic hymns can be as much of an idol as a rockin' praise band ever was. Because the key is not whether something is new or different, but whether what takes place on Sunday mornings is driven by my personal preferences or whether it's driven by the Word of God. If I'm doing something just because it suits my own fancy, then I must beware lest that form of worship become a high place for me. And these are things that each of us must think about, even in a church like this one that's not on the cutting edge of most things. Because we all have preferences, right? Preferences aren't bad. We all have them. But we must always be willing to understand the difference between our preference and what God actually requires of us when we worship him. And if our preferences should ever keep us from embracing what God requires for us or from adding to what God requires of us, we must be willing to tear down the high places. And let me say this, even when our preferences seem to fit within the biblical mold of what God requires of us in worship, in other words, even if we can worship God the way that he said and still do it kind of the way that we like, we would still do well to stand back from what we consider to be normal and ask a question like this. Could I worship God in a church where many of my own worship penchants were not met? Could I worship God in a church where they're doing the right things, but they're doing it in a different way than what I like and what I'm used to? And some of you may say, I'm doing that right now. (laughs) And if so, thank you for bearing with us. But for the rest of us, for whom what we do on Sundays and Wednesdays feels pretty normal and customary and comfortable, we should ask ourselves, if I were to move to a different city, could I worship God in a church with a totally different style or demographic or gift set So long as the Bible was faithfully read and taught and the gospel was clearly preached and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs were sung earnestly to the Lord and baptism and the Lord's Supper were administered scripturally and accountability and fellowship were genuine and prayer was essential and no human inventions were added to the mix, could I worship God there even if it was different from what I'm used to? Or would I be content to forego some of those biblical and required things simply in order to worship in the way that I prefer. That's what happened in ancient Judah. That's why the high places were not taken away, because either the king or the people or both were content to allow preference and convenience and tradition to become more important than the word of God. And that's really the main point of 1 Kings fifteen fourteen, and of this sermon, I hope. It's a warning as to how easy it is, even among people who otherwise love the Lord deeply, how easy it is to allow preference and convenience and expedience and tradition and inertia and maybe even a desire not to rock the boat to trump God's word, 
even sometimes in the heart of the most godly people. Don't let that happen to you, whether it's in the specific realm of what it means to worship God rightly or in any other area of your life. Don't be let it said of you as it was of Asa. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but rather give everything you've got to follow the Lord fully. Yes, realize that you won't do so perfectly, and so keep fleeing to the cross of Jesus when you fall. Keep relying upon grace, but set your heart by grace to tear down any and all high places that the Lord should reveal in your life. Realize that you will sin, but don't ever make peace with your sin. What a lesson there is in this text. Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but the high places were not taken away. I hope today we've begun to learn that lesson.